And our scripture today is from Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. So who doesn't love a good mystery? Um, I think most people do. A whodunit, right? John Grisham, Tom Clancy, my wife's favorite, uh, James Patterson. Uh, she likes Sue Grafton, too. Uh, I was going to look at current TV shows, but I didn't know what I was doing, so I didn't do that. So old ones. Old ones, Unsolved Mysteries, uh, Murder, She Wrote. Um, Agatha Christie's been around a long time, and she's got, uh, you know, they're putting another Hercule Poirot, another one of those uh, movies about an old Agatha Christie book is coming out any time, if it hasn't already. Um, how about for the younger set? Really, you know, my, my wife likes reading books. For me, cartoons are a little more my speed. Scooby-Doo. Uh, how about that? Anybody know the name of the van that they ride, rode around, ride around in? The Mystery Machine. The Mystery Machine. There's there's the g- 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 ghost. Come on, Scoob. We got to do it. Come on, Scoob, for a Scooby step. You know, uh, so mysteries to solve, but the thing about Scooby-Doo and the mystery machine is there, there wasn't a g- 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 ghost. It was just it was just Mr. Hankins, you know. They pull off the hat and, you know. So today as we talk about mysteries revealed, there's, there's no, you know, eerie secret. Ooh, wow, something nobody's ever heard before. It's been made known. It's kind of like... Uh, boy who was in Sunday school and the teacher was saying, now, now class, I want you to think of, of an animal. It's small and it's gray and it's got a fuzzy tail and it climbs trees and, and gathers acorns and nobody would say anything. And then finally one boy said, well, I want to say a squirrel, but because we're in church, I'll say Jesus. And, 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 and um, you know, so the mystery has been revealed and, and, and the mystery is Jesus. But as we saw last week, it's also God's people, and Paul's going to expand on that thought as we continue in the book of Ephesians, now in chapter 3, the first half of it. So let's give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Uh, right now, I'm just going to read our, our first paragraph. If you, you look at your listening guide, the sermon outline on the back, it's got um, the first half of Philippians, uh, Ephesians 3. I'm just going to read the top paragraph, the first six verses. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, 
assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we have uh, 168 hours a week. Our, Our responsibilities differ. Some of us have more responsibilities than others. Some have more discretionary time than others, perhaps. But we've got 168 hours a week, and we set aside little more than one to gather together for public worship and and devote roughly half of that time to looking into your word together. It seems to me almost an impossible task to to fairly preach and teach, to, to preach the gospel, to preach the whole counsel of God. And so recognize this morning, we're not even scratching the surface, we're just touching on a few important points from the passage, but we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, be our instructor, lead us into um, the understanding of your word, and help us to believe it and to apply it to our lives. We pray that we might walk in manners worthy of our calling in Christ, in whose name we pray. All right, so the big reveal, right? Gender reveals are really big out there. They're getting more and more elaborate. People are setting off bombs in their backyards and all that kind of thing. Um, interesting, only seem to be two, two varieties, pink and blue, but that's another story. So the, the big reveal, what, what is the reveal? It's an unknowable secret unless God gives revelation, and he has. So there isn't any mystery. You know, some, some folks, they read the Bible, they understand the basic plan of salvation, that, that people are sinful and that Christ is a redeemer and there is hope of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And, and they kind of get the basic gist of the story down. And then they're looking for something else. Yeah, yeah, I got that. You know, I prayed the prayer, I walked the aisle, I got the fire insurance, whatever. You know, tell me something I haven't already heard. And they're looking for something new. But... There, there is no deeper truth than Jesus, but there is no more profound truth at the same time. So we don't need to be running a lot around looking into Kabbalah or mystery religions or Eastern mysticism or anything like that. We need to look to Christ. We need always to look to Christ. The big reveal, that which was formerly hidden, has been unveiled. It's been made manifest. It's been manifested Uh, Point one, to Paul, to the apostles, and the prophets by the Spirit. To Paul, to the apostles and the prophets, and I take prophets here in the New Testament sense of the word in particular, that foundation of the church, right? Christ, we saw last week, is the cornerstone, but the foundation is the, the apostolic preaching. In fact, after the sermon and the prayer today, we'll say the apostles' creed together. They didn't write that. It's a summary of the apostolic teaching, the gospel, and that which has been handed down in the church. So Paul, who is Paul? Well, he calls himself 
here in the passage, um, the least of the apostles. The very least, verse 8, the very least of all the saints. Now, why does he call himself that? Uh, Elsewhere, he calls himself the chief of all sinners, the foremost of all sinners. And when you come to grips with your own sinfulness before a holy God, if you don't see yourself as sinful, what need have you for a Savior? But if you do see yourself as sinful and as someone standing in need of forgiveness, as Brian prayed earlier, then you will appreciate more the holiness of God and his grace and his mercy to you in Christ. And that was true for Paul. Why did he call himself the least of all the saints? Uh, maybe because he was kind of a Johnny-come-lately, right? That he wasn't with the twelve, you know, as they went around during Christ's two and a half, three years of public earthly ministry. He wasn't one of them. He was a Johnny-come-lately. Uh, but, but more so, actually, I think he calls himself the least of the saints because he remembered his past. Earlier we saw in Ephesians that Paul is imploring these Gentile, these non-Jewish believers to remember their past, how they were alienated, how they were separated, how they were estranged from God, but now it's been changed in Christ. They've been drawn near. And Paul remembered his past that he formerly was a violent persecutor of the church, right? That's what he was doing when he had his encounter with the risen Christ, by by which that qualified him to be an apostle. He had to be a, a witness, an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. And Acts 9 details that account. What was he doing? He was on his way to Syria to round up Christians and throw them in jail or worse. Men, women, and children. He who was a persecutor of the church, his life was changed by this dramatic encounter with the risen Christ. And now he is preaching and teaching about this Jesus that he once reviled. And in Acts chapter 9, it's also insightful to me when the Lord Jesus reveals himself directly to uh, to Paul, who was formerly called Saul, this Jewish rabbi who was very zealous and a persecutor of the church. What does Jesus say to him? He says, Saul, Saul, why do you hurt them? No. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you hurt me? Jesus says that to him. And Paul realizes that in hurting the people of God, followers of this new way, Christians, that he's hurt Jesus. So the big reveal has now been manifested. Um, to Paul, and not only to him, but the rest of the apostles. Apostles are envoys. They are special messengers of God, as I said, in the highest class, in the highest sense of the word apostle. um, You had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Savior. The apostles and the prophets, they're the one first century as the New Testament letters were being written and circulated and prophecy was being given in the church at that time. Uh, that formed the foundation of the church, and the Spirit was moving among them. The Spirit was connecting the dots, as it were, for his disciples, because while the New Testament letters were being written, the Bible that they had was the Old Testament. The Bible is, uh, is kind of like the scaffolding of a building uh, while the building is being constructed. And, and now the building, living stones, a temple, a household for God, a holy habitation, 
of living stones, his people, it's now been built. It's now been revealed. You take the scaffolding away. So the Old Testament is sort of that scaffolding. The Spirit synthesizes the scriptures so that his servants see the significance. That was a lot of S's. Um, All right. So what's the big mystery? What's the big mystery? Mystery is used three times in our passage. I put it in green for you if you're looking at the sermon outline in your hand there. Verses 3, 4, and 6. What is the big mystery? What is the secret counsel of God's will that during the time of the scaffolding, during the Old Testament, when you had shadows and types and not yet its fulfillment, um, they knew Messiah was to come, but they did not know his identity. And so the mystery that Paul is speaking of here in Ephesians chapter 3, I think, is twofold. First, like that boy in Sunday school, the right answer is Jesus. It's always Jesus in church. So that is the right answer. But the second part of the mystery here is with regard to the people of God. And it's that non-Jewish people, folks who didn't have the covenants of promise and the, the, all the prophets and the, and the blessings that they too are part of the people of God. So what's the big mystery? Non-Jews are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. That's a bunch of words in English. In the original language, it's three compound words. Paul is sort of heaping up prefixes on these words. Uh, They're fellow heirs. They're joint recipients. They're co-inheritors of God and of Christ. And I've thrown out a couple of times a cross-reference about that, um, not in your notes, Romans 8, 17, that we're heirs with Christ. And the, the significant thing to Paul here is that the Jews, Paul, who is the most Jewish of the Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, as to the law, morally uh, without defect, He was a Jewish disciple of great zeal, great commitment, and great fervor. And now he understands that the mystery has been revealed. Yes, it's Christ, but it's also that the non-Jewish peoples of the earth, the peoples of the nations, are co-heirs with Christ. They're members of the same body. What body? The body of Christ, believers on the earth, the church, in other words, the Christian community. And they are also, non-Jews are, partakers of the promise. As partakers, they are co-participants with the Jews now. The Old Testament, with its provisional announcements of a coming king, a Messiah who would one day come, has been, to use the language later in the passage, realized now in Christ. And so both Jew and non-Jew, Jew and Gentile together, have an interest in this. It's kind of like um, having a joint account at a bank. Both parties have access now to the riches, to the, the funds that are available. And how is this? It's through the gospel, verse 6. It's through the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of God's Messiah. Uh, we happen to know now his identity. The mystery has been revealed. It's Jesus of Nazareth, 
or as Paul calls them repeatedly in this passage, Christ Jesus. Christ is anointed one, Messiah, that coming king. Jesus, his name means salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. And how he does this is through his person and work. It's through who he is and what he does. Who he is, as we've already said, the Messiah of God. And what he does is he perfectly obeys the Father. He lives a life of what theologians call active obedience. He fulfills all righteousness. And then his sacrificial death, his substitutionary death, he dies in our place, in our stead. The judgment that should rightfully fall upon us has instead fallen on him. And then his bodily resurrection. We're saved by Christ's life. We're saved by Christ's death. We're saved by Christ's resurrection. And it was bodily. It was a physical resurrection. It wasn't a phantasm like on Scooby or even on Scooby-Doo. They were fake ghosts, right? It it wasn't a phantasm, a ghost, an apparition or anything like that. He bodily rose from the dead by God's great power at work within him brought him back to life and made him the first fruits of a new kind of, uh, of people. Um, to recap the mystery, by the way, the book of Colossians uh, talks lots about these mysteries that now reveal. And in Colossians chapter 1, let me just read a couple of verses. Did not put this reference in your notes, I don't believe. Colossians 1 verses 26 and 27 with regard to the mystery. It says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And remember, saints are all those who have union with Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're a saint. The mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Drum roll, please. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the Sunday school student is correct. Jesus is the answer. That's the mystery. The mystery has now been revealed. But to whom has it been revealed? In chapter 2 in Colossians, it says that God's mystery is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and that this is for all the peoples, all the nations. To the Jewish mind, this was shocking at first. It was thought to be some sect, some offshoot of Judaism at first. And and to Paul, that's why he was a persecutor of the church. That's why he was rounding up Christians and throwing them in jail. We're seeing them put to death. It did not really compute. It didn't really make sense to him at first. And now he's talking to the church in Ephesus, to largely non-Jewish people, And he's telling them, you're in. You're in. You have a vested interest in this. You're joint heirs. You have access. And this is all unprecedented. So as we continue on to letter B, the takeaways from uh, what we're looking at today. In Ephesians, let's let's finish off the chapter. Now verses 7 through 13. Let me read them aloud. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given 
to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Head, heart, hand. This is our method for applying this to our lives. It's holistic. It speaks to the whole person. To know, to be, and to do. Head, to, to know. The riches of Christ are unsearchable. That's what we're to know. It says so right in the passage. The riches of Christ are unsearchable. Verse 8. Um, the overflowing wealth of God's goodness and grace. Romans 11.33 puts it this way. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable, I'm sorry, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. It's unsearchable. It's unfathomable. You might know that a fathom is used for measuring depth in water, right? Uh, fathoms were given in depth sounding. By the way, that's where uh, Mark Twain, we know him, the author Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, that is a term that was used on the river. He actually uh, worked on a steamboat on the Mississippi River, and he worked for uh, under for a, a captain who called himself Mark Twain, And Samuel Clemens adopted, they were good friends, and Samuel Clemens adopted that as his pen name. Mark uh, means to measure, uh, and Twain is an old word for for two. And so uh, two times six feet. Maybe he thought he was twice twice the man of other people. Because a fathom fathom is an old English word. Um, It literally means outstretched arms. And the significance of that is, is for your average man, and I'm pretty darn average, uh, the average span of a man's arms are six feet. So six feet is one fathom. Um, To me, it's great that Christ has stretched out his arms so that we might begin to scratch the surface and just touch on the unsearchable, the unfathomable, riches of Christ. We know God truly through Christ, but we cannot know him comprehensively. And there's a distinction there. We truly know God. The mystery has been revealed. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He is God's Messiah. All peoples can have salvation in and through him. Uh, And we know God truly, but not comprehensively. And you and I have not begin, uh, begun to, to plumb the depths of God's goodness to us in Christ. So that's what we are to know. The first point 
the riches of Christ are unsearchable. The second bullet point under head to know is that God's plan, isn't it great to know that God has a plan? This passage and and elsewhere in, in, in Ephesians, it speaks of God's plan, his eternal purpose. Verse 11, God has a plan. Sometimes I think we wonder. Uh, is God able? Well, maybe he is able, but is he good? And we wonder about these things. And the scriptures tell us God has a plan. And his program of redemption is being unveiled and rolled out, ultimately in Christ. And he's continuing to call people to himself yet today. That's why he tarries. That's why he waits. He's not slow about his promise. God's plan is to use the church. It's through the church, verse 10, to proclaim the gospel. Were you aware that our, uh, the, the constitution of, of our church includes doctrinal statements like the Westminster Confession of Faith? And in the 25th chapter, the second paragraph says in part, the visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, outside of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And that's in keeping with what Paul is teaching here in Ephesians 3. That God's plan is to use the church. Um, The church is the ecclesia, those who are called out from the world by God. And we're called to proclaim the gospel. Verse 9 says to bring to light everyone, Uh, bring the light to everyone. GE used to have a slogan they used for about a quarter of a century. We bring good things to life. In the end, a little light bulb would flash on the GE logo. Well, Jesus brings good things to life, and we are to share the light of Christ with the whole world. That's why we we, uh, sang the hymn this morning. We have a story to tell to the nations. We are to pro- proclaim the gospel to people, even to the spiritual forces in the heavenlies, to declare that there is a king who is victorious, and the grave could not hold him. And we know who it is. In 1 Peter chapter 2, um, another apostle of God, Peter, writes this about the purpose of our calling in Christ. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10 say, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here's the purpose, why you are called. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the reason for which we are called to know Christ, to proclaim his excellencies, his, his glories to other people. Um, Paul calls or refers to himself as a minister in this passage, verse 7, and he speaks of his stewardship, verse 2, the stewardship of God's grace. Uh, the word that's used in the original language for steward is where we get our term economy. Oikonomos. Economy means management of the house. You might know that a steward is a manager of somebody else's belongings. 
house, a good steward, a good manager, like maybe you have a fiduciary. You have your monies with some sort of an agent who is a fiduciary. He has a, a good faith or she has a good faith trust with you to handle your monies responsibly and only to act uh, in ways that are beneficial to you. Paul here speaks of the stewardship of God's grace. It's management of another's property. So the gospel is the gospel of the grace of the Lord extended to people. And Paul saw himself a steward of it, a minister of it, an apostle of it, a Johnny-come-lately, a least of all the saints. And I think there's a tendency in the church for us today, brothers and sisters, to excuse ourselves and go, well, that was Paul. He was an apostle. He was an eyewitness of Jesus. He was this man, formerly a persecutor of the church, now called to preach the gospel in new places to new people. And God was going to show him how much he had to suffer uh, along the way. But that's not me. And that's not for today. That's just back during, that's for Paul. And that's during Bible times. And I would say to you, no. Uh, what, what I've already said, verse 10, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now, back at the time of writing, mid, you know, circa 62 AD, and it still holds true today. God has given march, marching orders, the Great Commission, which has not been rescinded, to go and teach all of Christ's word to the nations, baptizing, making disciples, Right? It's not been rescinded. So the two things to know, the riches of Christ are unsearchable. God's Second, God's plan is to use the church, you and me, to proclaim the gospel. What about heart? What are we to be as a result of a few minutes spent together in Ephesians 3? Well, we can approach God with boldness and confidence. I'm not going to say a whole lot about this. I spoke to it a little bit last week, and we'll talk some more about it. Uh, next time we're together, two weeks from today. Remember, next Sunday, Pastor Nick is candidating. But we'll be back in Ephesians two weeks from today, Lord willing. But the fact that we can approach God with boldness, what came to mind to me is I, I'm not, uh, I've never, I'm not a veteran. I've not served in the military. I'm in God's army, yes, sir. But uh, uh, if somebody in the military was to speak to a superior officer, you might hear them say to their superior permission to speak freely. In other words, can I really tell you what I'm thinking or give you my honest opinion without fear of recrimination or, or discipline or something like that? Well, you and I have that sort of boldness before the Lord. We can go to him. We can do, as Psalm 62 says, pour out our hearts before him because of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, Nancy read for us the passage at the bottom of the back of your sermon outline from Hebrews chapter 10. So I won't reread it, but I put in bold confidence as we draw near to God. Confidence. Um, we have interactive access to God by faith in Christ. Well, about what about hand? Head to know, heart to be, hand is what do we do in light of being informed by Ephesians chapter 3. What do we do? I've got two points for you. One is to uh, B, 
be willing to suffer in bringing the gospel to others. Be willing to suffer, verse 13, in bringing the gospel to others. So in terms of the original meaning of this passage, what does he say also about himself? He describes himself various ways. Verse 1, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So this is sometimes called a prison epistle, a prison letter that he was in jail, his first Roman imprisonment, most likely, where he was under house arrest in Rome, Italy. And so he was suffering consequences for the preaching of the gospel. In the Sunday school hour, talked briefly about Paul's missionary method. He would go to a new place. He would go first to the Jews, to the Jewish synagogue, and he'd preach the the gospel there of Christ crucified and risen. A few might be interested, but usually he would be rejected, sometimes violently. And so then he would shake the dust off his feet and he'd go to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, wherever he could find them down by the river, in the marketplace. He would go to them. Uh, And as I said earlier, when Paul was called, you might remember the story of Ananias going and saying to him, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Um, What God said to Ananias, and, and who likely conveyed that to Paul, was that God would show this Saul, now Paul, the least, the littlest, small Paul, um, he would show him how much he would have to suffer for the sake of Christ. Well, again, I think there's this tendency for you and for me today in northern Illinois in the winter of 2022, hopefully soon to be spring, um, is to exonerate ourselves from responsibility. To say, well, that was for Paul, not for us. But in Philippians, in chapter 1, What Paul says to them, and I believe it still holds true to us today, it says, for God has granted unto you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The two go together, and it wasn't just for Paul. It was for other believers too. So we can't kind of weasel out from under and say, well, I don't have to do that. And to do, be willing to suffer in bringing the gospel to others. Paul, a prisoner. Paul, the least. Paul, a minister. And our deacons and others here might be interested to know that that word, minister, literally is deacon, which means a servant. And the etymology of the word, it, it literally means one who kicks up dust. They are not only table waiters, they would kick up dust. So they would scurry about in their service to the church and to the Lord. And Paul considered himself, in a sense, not only an apostle, a proclaimer of the gospel, but also a minister of it in his stewardship of the manifold grace of God. The riches of Christ, the manifold wisdom... And the word there is multicolored, multi-hued. Um, some of you that might raise plants in your yard, you might have a variegated plant. It means it's, it's many-colored. And the many-colored, multi-colored wisdom of God is what we get to proclaim. In uh, Matthew chapter 10, we have these words of Christ. 
this one again. Verses 26 through 28. Jesus says, So have no fear of them, of persecutors, people who are persecuting believers. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So Jesus' perspective was not to fear people. Be willing to suffer in bringing the gospel to others. And the the last action point, your last bullet point on your outline is pray for the persecuted church. Pray for the persecuted church. At a couple of the churches that I've served, actually made it a practice to pray for the persecuted church in the pastoral prayer every Sunday. And we would rotate different areas of the world, different countries of the world. I'm not going to go far down the road. Everybody's mind is about what's happening in Ukraine right now. And we have some good seminaries in Ukraine. Um, and there, there are believers who had to flee from their homes. What, over a million people have now left? And some of them just had to put you know, what few possessions they could grab in a bag and, and go, not knowing if they will ever return to their homes. And maybe you've seen on social media or in the news pictures of the underground church, literally under the underground church in different parts of the world. And the persecuted church means sort of the secret meetings of the church. In the Ukraine, they're meeting underneath the ground because of the bombings. But what about praying for the pastors in Russia who are now courageously standing up to Putin and going public, decrying what he's doing? Ought we not pray for them as well? Um, I have for some time now been praying for the persecuted church in China, Early Rain Covenant Church. Their pastor, whose name escapes me uh, right at the moment, their pastor is wrongfully imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, and he was sentenced to nine years. He has a wife and a young child, and he's in prison today in China because of this gospel that we preach and proclaim uh, publicly. And, you know, my opinion is persecution of Christians is just going to be ratcheted up. And it's coming our direction. And so Paul tells the church there in Ephesus, don't lose heart, verse 13. Don't lose heart. Don't give in to discouragement or disillusionment. In short, I would say, you know, just like in Scooby-Doo Mysteries, it wasn't really a ghost. It was Mr. So-and-so. You know, they pulled the mask off of him. Um, I've read the book. I know how it comes out. God wins, and we get to be on that side. My last cross-reference this morning comes from the last book of the Bible, Revelation uh, chapter 7, and I think this is a fitting close this morning. I'll just read verses 9 and 10. You might do well to look down through verse 12 later on in your own today, but Revelation 7, just verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God has his people everywhere, and he's calling them to himself. We need to pray for the persecuted church. Um, As we pray now, I'm also going to offer, if you've been coming and hearing these messages on Ephesians and you realize that, that you know about Jesus, but you don't know the Lord personally, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to utilize a prayer from Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Uh, I, I have to confess, I've never been able, I don't know why uh, I've got ADD as an adult or something, I've never been able to complete reading Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, but in it, Christian and Hopeful in this scene walk together and they discuss how their friend Faithful had helped Hopeful to become a pilgrim. And Hopeful recited the prayer that Faithful had taught him. And so if you've been hearing these messages about Christ and what it really means to know the Lord, to have union with Christ, to be found in Christ, in him, to be linked to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus... And you want that for yourself. Make this prayer your own. And after that, we'll continue to pray for just a few other interests. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I acknowledge and confess my sinfulness and all my sins. Help me to know and believe in Jesus Christ, for I see that without his righteousness and mercy... And unless I believe in that righteousness and accept his offered mercy, I shall be lost forever. Lord, I have heard that you are a merciful God and that you have ordained your son, Jesus Christ, to be the savior of the world and that you are willing to bestow his goodness and mercy upon a poor sinner like me. And I am a wretched, helpless sinner indeed. Lord, now take away my sins and give me your righteousness. Magnify your grace in the salvation of my soul. In Jesus' name, amen. And Lord, as we continue to pray, um, you know this congregation here today. You know where we are. Every one of us. You know our hearts. Your word is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart, even. And you know our needs. As our loving Heavenly Father, you know our needs. There are some here who are grieving, who are hurting. We pray for your nearness and your comfort to them. We look to you for our protection. We look to you for our provision. We ask that you would help us not to lose heart in life or when we are sort of overwhelmed at the world scene and the news and the headlines. Help us not to give in to discouragement or disillusionment but to take you at your word and to know that you never lie. And there will be people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation surrounding your throne. And so now we would pray for the persecuted church, for believers in Ukraine, those that are staying, those that are fleeing, for pastors and others who are standing up for the cause of justice and mercy and righteousness. Um, in in the former Soviet Union uh, for that pastor and for his family 
and for Early Rain Covenant Church in China. We remember them and ask your nearness to them and your blessing that you would sustain them with willing spirits, that you would encourage them in Christ. Amen.